0: Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness and again, what is becoming a weekly refrain. Uh, please if you enjoy the show, take some time, write a review, get the word out uh, wherever you uh, get your casts as they say. Uh, I'd be greatly appreciated. And again, there's a whole treasure trove of shows on uh, technosis.com as well as uh, Podbean. Uh, I was alerted that the Podbean RS feed only goes back to uh, December 2016. So we're working on that because there's a lot more shows there, uh, many years more worth of shows. So uh, hopefully we'll be clearing that up so you can get those earlier shows as quickly as you can or as conveniently as you can. So last... a a doctoral student reached out to me uh, to do an interview for uh, ethnography that she was doing on um, mindfulness technology and so we talked and uh, the questions were very interesting although she was a little cagey about where she was coming from but that's what you're supposed to do when you're interviewing people you don't want to you know twist their ideas uh, impress them in in too strong a way so it was utterly appropriate um but i was very intrigued with her study because the idea of approaching this whole explosion of mindfulness and well-being technology and how it's transforming our ideas of Buddhism, of meditation, of well-being, and, you know, doing the technological entrepreneurial spin on these things um, is, uh, you know, a fascinating topic, sometimes a a bit uh, dismaying to me personally, because it's not really where I'm coming from, even though I've always been interested in technology and believe in the um, approaches that are summed up in the local community's name, consciousness hacking, I think the idea that we are you know, in physical bodies with, uh, uh, these curious consciousness flows going on and that we can nudge it and perturb it and expand it and intensify it. Uh, and that it's sort of our right to explore in that spirit. And I think a lot of, um, a lot of spirituality in the modern world comes from, uh, that kind of urge to explore and the sort of, uh, uh, self-reliance that it implies there's problems with that view of course that's always part of the part of the pie is uh is the problems um but i'm really interested in this process at the same time as that's going on in this era of hyper capitalism uh and the sort of end of the world it all becomes a little a little stranger uh when we start to factor in artificial intelligence and the uh, management of affect and uh uh, experience through technology, the, the ways in which uh, experience design is becoming more and more robust and intensified. Um, so I'm really looking forward to talking to the so far unnamed uh, doctoral candidate, Rebecca Jablonski, who uh, is... I th- her, she's getting her PhD at the in, in science technology studies at uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic, but she's currently in Berkeley. She's lived in the Bay Area before. And um, I was really interested to find out uh, before she ended her PhD program uh, doing technology studies, which is a great field. It's one of my favorite fields in, in, in academia right now. I think that a lot of the best questions are being asked there. Um, but before that, she was a, a UX designer, a, a you know, user experience designer. My wife is, was a user ex- experience designer for a long time, and so I'm, I've been around that community and a lot of the issues uh, for quite a long time. And I think that's going to add an interesting twist to the conversation that she's not just coming from an uh, academic background. So uh, with no further ado, Rebecca, welcome to Expanding Mind.
1: Thank you, thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So you are you done with your uh, your ethnography?
1: No,'m I'm, I'm right in the thick of it. Um, I started oh. probably around the end of summer 2018, and I'll continue my ethnography through September or October 2019. Man. So I have a good sense of uh, some of the themes that have emerged, but I'm also very much still in the thick of it.
0: God, how many how many people are you going to be talking to in the end?
1: I think I estimated around 50, Um, but it's not just talking to people. So, you know, you and I did a one-on-one interview. Um, A lot of the work that I do as an ethnographer is embedding myself in cultures of technology, which being in the Bay Area really helps doing that, Um, getting that sort of, uh, you know, immediate experience of the technology industry by going to events, going to conferences, conferences. The consciousness hacking community that you mentioned actually has been a really good uh, avenue for my research in that. Um, so there's, yeah, there's a lot of observational as well as uh, speaking and interview components to the work.
0: You know, I, I wanted to mention since since we're talking about uh, consciousness hacking that in, I suspect you're going to be there as well. Up in, in May 18th and 19th here in San Francisco, they're holding the Awakened Futures Summit and just it's my it's even kind of interesting to read the the the, the copy cuz it kind of you know sets sets the stage for our conversation i mean the summit is devoted to the intersection of psychedelics technology and meditation which is already kind of mind blowing to me that that can be said so sort of uh, as a matter of course these days um And together we'll explore how the renaissance of psychedelic science and the mainstreaming of contemplative practices might combine with the latest transformative technologies to create the next paradigm of healing and awakening. There's so many things going on in that already. Um, You know, how how did you come to uh, be drawn to this really interesting field based on you know, your earlier work, or you're even living in the Bay Area, or, or doing work in the in the in the UX world, when you entered into the technology studies program, what was it about this particular kind of conjunction of technology and, and, and uh, expanded consciousness or consciousness practices uh, that drew you?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I should say I didn't start off my PhD thinking that I would study meditation apps. It kind of uh, happened a little bit more organically after a while. Um, but my my inspiration for what I applied to do the PhD for was uh, a lot of what I was seeing in the Bay Area, I was very embedded in alternative health and healing communities uh, within Silicon Valley. I, I lived in Oakland. Um, And I found that a lot of people sort of uh, posited alternative healing and embodiment as a direct opposition to the effects of technology on well-being and on society, how technology was controlling the mind and the body. Um, In particular, I'm thinking of uh, movements around that time, 2015, 2016. There were a number of digital detox retreats that were popping up, kind of these... uh, Boutique experiences uh, in which people can pay to get away from technology and sort of enter this more immediate, uh, primal state of being in community. And so that was my original interest uh, when applying into the PhD program. But then um, I'm sure, as you know, things change as you start to take classes, read the literature, see what's out there.
0: And so, what was it? Uh, was there a particular kind of technology or? Or event, or something that really uh, gave you a sense of the interesting issues that were brought together with the with the new wave of apps and uh, and just the whole kind of blending of entrepreneurial technology culture and and mindfulness.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, when I first I heard about meditation apps, probably in 2016 or 2017, and I didn't know that I'd end up studying them. Um, but I had a a course paper I had to write. It was called movement through the world or movement writing a paper that moves somebody, the reader, through a world. And I thought it would be an interesting experiment to put myself through the meditation app programs of these emerging apps and then to you know describe them, to render them, uh, to move the reader through what it feels like to use them. So I did that with a couple of uh, popular meditation apps. I think it was Headspace and Calm. I, I did those intro programs and I wrote about it. And one of the first uh, meditations, uh, may- maybe it was in the middle of the program, I opened up the app. I don't remember which app it was. Um, I opened up the app to start a meditation, and then I got a notification on my phone, an email from the meditation app company, basically encouraging me to buy their product. As I So I guess opening up the app triggered this email, and then it, it sort of ironically disrupted me. It uh, distracted me from doing the meditation, so I kind of went into my habitual mode where I automatically uh, struck, you know, opened the notification. I I I went to my inbox. I looked at the email. Then I got distracted by another email uh, in my inbox. Once I was there, it was sort of like the context switch had happened, and then I had to sort of bring my back myself back to remember. Oh yeah, I had planned on meditating at that moment but I was checking my email instead. And so, yeah, that experience really opened my eyes to the sort of paradox that meditation apps, I think, embody in this this moment, culturally, and that uh, many people are framing a lot of social problems in technical terms, how how sort of um, technology is impacting people and society at the level of consciousness and also at the level of social relationships. Um, but then here, meditation apps sort of present technology as a potential solution to the problems. It's sort of using the very same medium um, to deal with both problem and solution. Uh, so that, I think, is one of the most interesting aspects of studying meditation apps, that, we're, that people are moving away from, uh, you know, purely escaping technology to sort of Working within technology's parameters to find personal growth and healing.
0: Yeah, that's that's true. That is a shift, and of course they're not mutually exclusive. Like I, I know people who are very much consciousness hacker type of folks, but they love to they'll take a you know a day off tech. You know, there's a lot of. Uh, folks who, who do like a shabbat you know like where there's no they're like a tech free shabbat that's the way they do it their saturdays they're turn off all the machines but they're totally technology people otherwise so it's a you know it's a wide range of things but you know i have to admit i've never looked at a meditation app i've developed my meditation practice all by myself <laughs> and so it doesn't it seems kind of weird to me so i would never do that but i i'm actually just kind of curious like what 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 do these things offer i mean what what or, uh, you know, are they, are, they, are they just like goads? Is it a way, you know, like, so if I'm, if I'm someone who's trying to start a meditation practice, what, how, how do they, they make things easier or more efficient or more powerful or whatever the, you know, the word we want to use is from just, you know, forcing myself to sit on the pillow every morning for, for a half an hour or something?
1: In terms of what they offer, I mean they offer a number of things. The most basic of which is just uh, a library of guided meditations, um, some of which are are put into sort of specific programs. Uh, so like a ten day meditation program for anxiety, for example. So there is a little bit more of um, you know directing the user towards uh, specific paths that might be useful for them
0: what what other what what are the various features they have other than guided meditation i know that some of them have like they'll show that other people who are using it at that same time so you don't feel like you're like meditating alone it's like oh wow there's like 200 people right now who are meditating i'm going to join them I, I i know some you know have that kind of feature i'm just thinking of the the uh, the, the different ways in which the affordances of the technology are used in order to mm-hmm. encourage people or you know draw them into practice
1: yeah so so a good example of, of another feature which i think um you know is a little bit more abstract but you know for the calm app uh for example when you open the calm app basically you're you're entering this sort of natural world um a sort of dynamic uh, Waterscape, where, where there is water, there's sort of flowing water and there are birds chirping. They kind of like create this, uh, recreate this natural environment upon opening the app. But I think you could actually change it. So you might want to uh, have like a crackling fire instead of this body of water as your main screen. But, it, uh, you know, a, a lot of these apps sort of try to transport the user to another frame of mind through atmosphere. Uh, So the the visual and and musical, the music component is another thing. Um, So the apps have uh, nature sounds, uh, relaxing music. Uh, Some people um, use the apps for what are called sleep stories, which are basically uh, adult bedtime stories. It's a very relaxing, soothing narrator, uh, slowly telling the user a story that they might, you know, they might be vaguely interested in, but they don't have to pay attention to fully. And uh, people listen to this as they sort of drift, drift into sleep. It helps them sort of like a, just an adult bedtime story. So, yeah, there are a number of uh, a number of features that the apps um, provide.
0: And, and had you done much meditation before you started to do this, uh, this exploration?
1: I had. Yeah, I. Um, I, I did yoga teacher training, so meditation was a was a large component of that. I, I've been in the yoga community for about probably about six or seven years now. So um, my experience has mainly been through in person communities, um, but I do use the apps as a sort of way to explore my research topic.
0: Uh, I'm curious, you know, when you were describing all of the, uh, the, especially the design elements, the 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 role of nature sounds. Um, and the kind of voiceovers I I just kind of flashed on the fact that there there was a sort of a, you know an analog uh, anticipation of this if you will with the explosion really of the new age in the ni- early 1980s late 70s early 1980s when um, it's not just that people were making music but the music was packaged as a as a kind of science of consciousness alteration with particular emphasis on calming on de-stressing and there were you know many claims made that that kind of fused scientific claims about frequencies with sort of, uh, you know, um, psychedelic New Age uh, tantric imagery of uh, chakras and uh, healing vibrations and kind of melding them together often with nature sounds. Some tapes would just be environmental sounds. And what's interesting about these, these things, which were mostly on cassette, is that they did have to do with their, with their own sort of technological evolution. Like it was partly the availability of inexpensive tape uh, cassette tapes that enabled this sort of world to emerge which was very much focused on that particular uh, technology rather than you know cds hadn't really started coming in yet and uh, more than more than vinyl albums because they they were sort of more handy They're the early days of the walkman um, so there was this sort of you know in a way a kind of anticipation of this except it was very much in, a, in an analog uh, mode and obviously much less interactive uh, than these can be, but there's sort of a, a, an, a longer dream behind uh, this technology of uh, integrated ways to bring uh, technical devices, states of consciousness, um, a sort of design ethos or a, an atmosphere, a kind of aesthetic um, language to uh, help people de-stress, I mean, that's largely tends to be the, the goal is that that modernity, for, you know, is overwhelming and here's a, this paradoxical object that can, you know, uh, balance it out. But do you think that, par- how how deep does that paradox go? How painful does that paradox become? That the very tool that's sort of causing the stress or causing the complexity is then turned to as a solution. To the stress or complexity?
1: Well, I, I think you could approach this question from another a number of perspectives. So I think, you know, from the perspective of people making the tools that, you know, these are are very um, necessary antidote to, you know, how digital technology is currently designed. And a number of the companies certainly play on this sort of um, juxtaposition in how they frame their tools. So... Uh, a component of my research is also doing digital ethnography, sort of tracking how how these tools are represented and, and spoken about on online forums, uh, popular media articles, etc. So, early in my uh, fieldwork, I, I came upon um, an interesting finding. Just personally, as I was uh, browsing Twitter, I, I, I sort of uh, was presented with a, a video from Com. Com. Was uh, you know posting these sort of videos of nature, uh, you know a flower sort of uh, flowing in the wind, and then a little timer, and it's and it's it was a countdown timer, and it, it said, "Stop what you're doing," and um, it said something like, "Stop, stop scrolling for a moment. Is th- is there something you'd rather be doing right now?" And then there was a little timer that said, uh, "Do nothing for thirty seconds." So. From the perspective of these companies, uh, they they sort of frame these tools as uh, disruptions in the normal digital stream, the sort of normal, habitual behaviors that people are enacting in the digital world. It's kind of like uh, inserting a very um, slower, more expansive experience into this fast-paced digital life, or, or that's at least how they frame it
0: yeah that's really fascinating. I'd never thought about exactly the disruptive character of that framework, and it reminds me a little bit of uh the stop exercises that that Gurdjieff would have. you know, they, people would be doing work in the in, in in his you know community and you know digging holes or whatever he was having to do and then he would just go stop and you were supposed to like com- literally physically hold your body in this way and then like you know, uh, have that opportunity to what he called self remember, which is related in some ways to some aspects of uh, of mindfulness. Um, basically, the, the idea is to develop the capacity to disrupt your normal chain as part of this like larger expansion or a growth towards a, a more integrated self and it's interesting because we it, it's another one of these paradoxes because even if we associate those states themselves at least generally with you know a kind of sense of expansion of a, of a lack of conflict, a lack of of, uh, of uh, juxtaposition you know it's like there's they're, they're sort of integrated they're holistic that nonetheless those those kinds of states in the midst of our other lives are, forms of disruption. Um, and, and indeed, it seems like one of the ways that people work to stay awake uh, in our current milieu is to learn ways to remind yourself, you know, whatever ways they are, uh, you know, in meditation, using apps, paying attention to things in your environment that will remind you, um, developing sort of habits that deconstruct other habits. I mean, it seems to be one of the the big challenges is how to interrupt uh, in a way that that you you actually do something different after that moment.
1: Definitely, yeah. But then a sort of uh, counterpoint to this that others have have brought up is you know if you are outsourcing awareness or attention to the technology itself, then then is that really attention or awareness that you're developing as a skill um, for yourself? And that's a sort of open question I think that people are really grappling with. Is it, is it some people, you know, they, they reflect in the interviews, for example, you know, they're not really sure if they're, if they're learning to meditate better or if they um, are, are they becoming more aware or are they outsourcing their awareness to technology? And then what are the consequences of that?
0: Wow, that's a that's a very interesting way of thinking about it. I mean, the more obvious example we have is how we've done that with our memories, and you know, I'm I'm old enough to remember when you remembered people's phone numbers, and that's a trivial example, but it it holds a lot a lot more than that. I'm I'm very aware of the way in which Google is sort of part of my. Composing strategy when I'm sitting and writing a text or when I'm having even having conversations with people It's like it's sort of woven into the field in a way And so in many ways we have I mean we've been outsourcing our memory to technology for a very very long time But it's it's noticeable the uptick and the intensification that that's gone through But what you're describing is something that's that's subtler and even more intimate in that sense more disturbing but uh, Or potentially but also in a way kind of inevitable uh, in terms of how tightly our our whole minds are coupled to technology, not just the, the seeking rational mind that wants to find the answer to something or wants to use a, a word process or in order to create a text to send somebody to, for some practical gain. Instead of that, it's like our emotional lives, our social lives, and increasingly our, our, the very kind of... Uh, intimate flow of our own consciousness is bound up with these things. So I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how some of the people you talk to who use these technologies, I don't know, reflected or, or um, considered that outsourcing of uh, awareness um, as either a problem or an inevitability or even a kind of, uh, you know, cyborg uh, potent possibility that's kind of exciting and interesting in certain ways.
1: Yeah, the, the cyborg is something that you know comes up a lot in, in the academic conversations. Uh, but but what you're I think what you're pointing to is a question of of do people identify uh, as you know technology as being a part of them or or outside of them? Um, and I think a lot of the people uh, I'm speaking to who use meditation apps think about uh, a sort of ecosystem, an information ecosystem, in, in which they are part of a larger world that includes technology, includes other people. There's very much uh, a reflection of how the individual relates to the environment and how uh, individuals and environments co-create each other. So I think, at least I found, the meditation app users are are, are more likely to think relationally about these things, and so they're less... um, you know, the, the, I, I'm seeing the argument. Oh, oh, you know, we have to get away from technology to be less and less irrelevant in my interviews. That um, people are seeing technology and and other people and thoughts and the world and and the physical things to be all part of the same ecosystem.
0: Oh, that's a, that's very interesting. That that makes sense to me. It it raises another question that I think is I, I've been noticing recently. I've read uh, a number of articles from people explaining why, let's say, they get off Facebook, or they they, they st- or they they're lessening their their social media, and, or changing their relationship to their to their phones, and they're they're not the media fast versions that you talked about, the ones where you have to get away from it entirely, but a lot of the the reasons seem to come from a growing awareness of their experience of their relationship to these feeds as being addictive or disruptive or of taking over something that they used to enjoy like sitting you know having three minutes free when you're when you're waiting for something and you just loaf you just sit there like just loafing is very difficult to do when you have a phone you're always checking your, your feeds, you're checking the news and how it's not so much about like oh my god the technology is evil and taking away my mind it's that realizing that there's a lot of different ways to interact with technology and that part of the problem of our situation right now is just that some of the very compulsive uh, affordances of technology have been taken up kind of unthinkingly, and that if we are in some kind of weird race where people are trying to not just give in to all of the prompts and all of the habits, all of the dopamine hits, I mean, that's a great example, the, the way that that's become a part of popular culture, people talking about dopamine in relationship to getting a like or getting a response on social media it shows that there's an awareness that there's kind of a biophysical dimension to this that that has a kind of out of control character it's like almost a race to see if we can still you know keep keep waking up uh rather than just submitting to what can from in a paranoid Perspective look like subtle and increasingly less subtle forms of mind control.
1: Yeah, and I think the the open question is whether you know what what do meditation apps reflect? Are they just another form of habitual compulsion, a sort of uh, relaxation? You know, just a, an automatic way to sort of relax somebody, or, or or are they you know tools for facilitating personal growth and awareness? And I think. Um, they can be both yeah so yeah and i i think there's not um there's not really a way to determine you know which it is globally i think it really um i'm seeing people grapple with this on a very individual level where they they realize that they're Using the app for a purpose, uh, and then they eventually realize that this purpose is is the wrong purpose to have, and that's something that that's pretty common in meditation communities in general. Is rethinking and re reflecting upon uh, why you're doing what you're doing, why you're thinking what you're thinking, and so people are you know really being thrown into these loops.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting way. Of, I mean, I'm I'm glad you made that connection. That, you know, it's not just about the technology and people using it and then coming to some determination that it's not exactly the way they want to do it that that's part of a a larger thing where people i mean i spent you know i've been meditating for you know almost 30 years but i i uh i spent a couple years doing what i would now call is just creating a self-induced trance (laughs) you know and at the time it was like oh man i'm really meditating and now i'm like no man you were just like you were just like hypnotizing yourself, basically, and of course, all these terms are are themselves mobile and redefinable. And one person's meditation is another person's trance, and you know the what we mean by meditation is so varied uh, that you know anywhere you go, you're you're going to be running into these same kinds of issues. But that iterative process, that self-critical process, that seems to me to be really positive. I mean that that, that when I talk about the race, it almost seems like that there there's no way to avoid getting drawn into fantasies or compulsive behaviors or things that you think are one thing but are actually another thing that going forward is the process of engaging those experiences and then hopefully u- using critique or awareness other people's input you know seeing them from another angle and then maybe changing that behavior or abandoning it altogether and moving on the fear i think that people have around uh, Technologies that they're they're going to get stuck like there's some kind of like that's where that compulsive thing or the, the the binging on Netflix or whatever there's a sense that there's like a stuckness to it, whereas uh, the possibility that it just becomes part of an you know an ongoing investigation um, that at least hopefully moves in in positive directions seems uh, you know in a way kind of a middle path between either saying technology is terrible, it's the last thing that has anything to do with personal growth, and just this kind of capitulation to the whole entrepreneurial self in, in, a, in an unthinking way.
1: Definitely, yeah. The middle path um, is, is a big theme that comes up in my work.
0: I'm curious if you could talk more about some of the people in terms of how they negotiated their changing relationships uh, with, the, with the apps.
1: Um, I think, I think ultimately, people are looking for a changed relationship uh, with life itself, and and the you know the digital technology often kind of stands in for this larger problem in society. You know, they're they're not necessarily technology and society. The relationship is kind of more complex than public discourse really allows. So I think people are really looking for um, a change to their life, to, to the experience, how they experience the world, how they go about the world. Um, and then there's also this feeling that, you know, what parts of the world can people actually change? And that's, that's a sort of uh, a larger question is what can you intervene upon? So a lot of... Uh, you know the common sort of trope is that you can't change the world, but you can change yourself. Um, and I think that many meditation app users and and many meditator, meditators uh, sort of approach changing the world through changing the self. That uh, by changing your relationship to the world, you're you're changing your life, you're changing your you know phenomenological experience. But then. The way you uh, interact with your environment, what you put out there, it sort of creates um, a different type of feedback loop that not only changes your experience, but others' experiences. It can, so changing yourself can make the world better, ultimately. And I think that's where a lot of people are coming from.
0: It, does that apply to the, the creators as well, the engineers, the marketers, the the business folk, the entrepreneurs who are behind these apps. I'm, you know, obviously you've spoken to a lot of them, but I, I'd be curious to get your, you know, your sense of where they're coming from uh, in terms of, you know, a sincere commitment to the, to the hope of human flourishing or more of a, Hey, here's a new market, a new set of customers who, who can be, uh, you know treated to algorithmic uh, you know processes in, in a way that makes us some money i mean there's a whole range in between but i'm curious what your sense was of the the intent of the people who are developing these these uh, programs
1: i think the intent is is largely positive um, a lot of people in the industry that i've spoken to, um, have extensive experience with meditation. Uh, you know, some are meditation teachers, um, you know, or they've done extensive monastic training in some capacity. They've done 10-day meditation retreats. They have that sort of uh, experience and that personal that personal story about why they think meditation is important. And, and it, it's a, it can be a little bit uh, evangelical at times in that they're trying to uh, then enroll millions and millions of people into these experiences that they personally had uh, but i think the in, the intention is is generally quite positive um, but in terms of you know the medium and, and how meditation apps exist within a larger technical infrastructure and ecosystem i I question whether or not, um, even at the level of a technology designer, how much control you have over that ecosystem, whether you're able to really um, embed alternative values into these uh, systems that were already built and in place.
0: Yeah, that's a really incisive point. One of the ways that I think about it is it's a really basic one, and it just kind of so happens that my my main training in in meditation and in 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 buddhism is zen and a particular flavor of soto zen that uh, places a lot of emphasis on no gaining thoughts you know that the idea that you're doing something to achieve something is like essentially part of the problem and this goes back to dogen zenji and you know it's a very robust part of the discourse where the what they call gaining ideas gets in your way. That in this view, uh, meditation is liberation. It's not like you're meditating to become liberated. And of course, it's a paradox because you're sitting there. You're going, I don't feel liberated. But that paradox, or that an invitation to let go of the gaining mind is at the core of this particular flavor of practice. This is not the case across Buddhism or different meditation regimes. It just happens to be the one that, that I was sort of brought up in. And that gives me a particularly interesting angle on um, one of the ways in which I think meditation apps don't evade uh, the larger ecosystem of capitalist uh, self-advancement, achievement, the entrepreneurial self, as, as people like to call it. And that has to do with the fact that you're always doing this for some purpose. And and obviously, you're feeling unhappy or anxious, and you're working for something, and you want, you're doing it because you want to not be anxious. That's fine. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the way that that the very capacity to withstand greater degrees of stress then itself becomes part of your skill set, uh, which then goes out and is able to uh, essentially compete um, in a, a market uh, in, a, in a more robust fashion. And I, I've met a lot of people like this. You know, people who are clearly have achieved, you know, insight levels of consciousness, degrees of self-control, degrees of self-awareness that are notable. And yet it becomes sort of packaged, and if you, if you will, weaponized in a way, precisely to go back into the fray except now at a sort of uh, you know, higher state. And that's the part where I, I things get really complicated for me is that, the, it's the same kind of idea of optimization. And you'll even hear this in, in you know, I'll be listening to some meditation teacher going on and they'll talk about, the you know, the optimal way to move through some uh, tricky uh, meditational conundrum. And I'm like, optimal, optimal, optimal. Like, is there, it, uh, maybe there isn't a way out. You know, maybe once optimal be, is part of the way that deleterious capitalism reproduces itself, then it's really hard to figure out how to even practice where you want goals, you want uh, breakthroughs, you want to get better. But at the same time, unless there's some really strong relationship to this idea that I've learned about practices is, is is liberation or no gaining idea, or as Alistair Crowley put it, no lust of result, uh, that that idea, uh, if, unless you balance that, then it, it becomes really easy to just reproduce the same drive that is is so pervasive throughout the society.
1: Definitely, yeah. I think you bring up a lot of interesting points. Um, you know, do we in the United States have the cultural tools to really grapple with with meditation, um, with with some of the belief systems, the history of these uh, practices as they existed? Uh, should we develop the cultural tools to really? Um, sort of embody alternative visions. I do see a lot in, in popular media, pop, popular discourse about uh, achievement, um, you're right, optimization, even framing the companies, the technology companies as in a battle, You know, a mindful battle with each other. That we don't have the cultural words to really understand these tools through a different framework that we we constantly um, put competition, achievement, optimization. Uh, we we layer these things on on top of them in, until their sort of uh, their meanings might be potentially lost. But on the other hand, I mean, can you imagine a meditation app putting an advertisement out on Twitter or, or Facebook and saying, "Download this app. You will get nothing from it." <laughs>
0: No, it's true. Even though, in a, in a lot of ways, that's what it, there's a lot of teachings where that's what you get at the end. It's like you know, oh, you thought you were going to get something, you're not going to get anything. And 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 whereas that kind of thinking, that sort of paradoxical, even ironic thinking about the the ultimate purposelessness or the um, the fact that you you know you get climbed the, the ladder and you get to the end and it's just a, a shoot down to where you started. Um, that that was part of the popular countercultural spiritual mind frame, not the dominant part necessarily. Certainly not the dominant part of of seventy's self actualization. But it was a very, you know, it was a very definite current within Buddhism, within spiritual practice in general. A kind of playfulness or an irony about exactly what you're doing with it, it had a sort of existential character to it. So it's not that. These things are too complicated. It's just that, like you say, I think that the conditions have changed so radically that people don't, you know they 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 they're not amused or even attracted to hey download this app it's not going to get you anything which is kind of funny you know it's kind of that's sort of attractive to me uh, but we <laughs> we really are in a you know in a you know it's a, it's it's a different time but that's part of what you know from my perspective is is I I really wonder about what gets lost when even the kind of weird translations of different religious traditions that we had in the countercultural period even when those Translations kind of dissolve, and meditation and mind becomes mindfulness, and mindfulness becomes well-being, and well-being is just sort of part of the management of the body mind as it withstands the pressures of the contemporary moment. That that something really is lost, Uh, and I can speak about it from the liberation point of view, like from a more like you know, quote unquote religious point of view in terms of in terms of Buddhism or or other practices, or you know. Uh, Fadriana or whatever, but even even leaving that aside, um, it still is. I, I find it a little unnerving. There's what what calls you out, what pulls people to another dimension, uh, a, a, a way of a perspective on their lives that's sufficiently outside of that normal churn. Uh, that something really can happen. and But maybe it does. And, and and that's that's just me sitting back being a little cranky. You've talked to a lot of people. Have people who are using these apps really had breakthroughs or things that were life-changing, things where they, they ended up acting differently in the world?
1: Definitely. Yeah, I've definitely heard a lot of positive, um, positive stories about the apps. Uh, but there is a sort of ironic thing that I've found, uh, which is that... Um, Many people feel like once they uh, reach a certain point with the apps, they they no longer need the apps. And so that's um, something interesting to think about. And certainly a lot of uh, app designers have expressed this, that ultimately they think that the app is a sort of tool for beginners, a sort of entry point into a larger um, exploration that technology can't always mediate and shouldn't always mediate. Uh, how they're reflecting that, uh, will that eventually, um, you know, will the business eventually sort of overshadow that initial plan? I'm not sure. It's not good for business to, to say, you know, you use the app and then eventually just forget about it. So I think long-term, I think it, it's, it's unclear uh, how these uh, apps will position themselves in people's lives. But from the user perspective, uh, they're, they're, they've been very uh, helpful starting points to think about things, to, to explore practices. I mean, I think in the Bay Area in particular, we're a little bit spoiled. We have a lot of um, access to alternative modalities, um, but one of the ways that technology is being presented uh, in the communities that I've been a part of is a sort of uh, a bridge to, to people who, who don't necessarily have these communities. And that's certainly been the case for, you know, a number of technologies to sort of create these virtual worlds of experience that you wouldn't have access to maybe in, you know, a more rural area.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, that's always, that's the, the, for me, the biggest paradox of a lot of these popularizations is that I tend to be kind of cranky about the way they look in my world. How they show up in, in, you know, as someone who lives in San Francisco who has already been doing this for a long time and kind of came from more of an underground perspective. So then I'm like, ah, oh, this is kind of cheesy. It's kind of easy. It's like, it's a little bit too that flavor of, of tang that comes with a lot of Silicon Valley interventions in our well being or in our consciousness. But I, I really totally change my tune when I start thinking about how these things are operating globally or in in a lot of communities where there's not a lot of access to things and this really gets into the other question that I wanted to kind of main question line that I wanted to ask in this last 10 minutes or so, which is about, you know, we're in a mental health crisis. The you know America the U.S. the world it's only gonna I think it's only gonna get worse because things are only gonna get weirder they're just gonna get more stressful and more <laughs> strange so if we're already in a mental health crisis it you know issues of of anxiety of depression of paranoia of even of psychosis you know although that's a little harder to say if, how its rates are changing but in any case we're definitely in the situation and there's not enough. Doctors, there's not enough money in the system to get people what they want. So a lot of people looking at it like systemically are going, Jesus, what are we gonna do with all these people? And and you know, one of the answers is saying like look, you can do cognitive behavior therapy online, you can even have the algorithms do it, and you can get some of the way, you can get some of the basic tools out there. Because a lot of it has to do with like habituating yourself to certain sort of feedback loops and certain sort of ways of gaining perspective on your own mind. And clearly that kind of works to a certain level. And in a lot of ways, me- these meditation apps, they're kind of part of that current. You know, in a way, taking them out of the like spiritual growth or, you know, well being industry and kind of looking at them in a way as another expression of the fact that a lot of suffering people aren't going to have a lot of. Uh, opportunity uh for you know robust either therapy or uh spiritual groups and the these things are ways that people can learn basic mind training uh in, in order to at least set in motion something that probably at some point would require more sophisticated or more personal work um so that kind of adds a whole different flavor to it. Are people thinking in those terms, or is, are they people? Are people still really thinking more in terms of spirituality, well-being, uh, you know, integration, consciousness?
1: Most of the meditation apps frame these tools not as spiritual but as secular. Um, but they they certainly serve a function that would be similar to spirituality. You can see how they might. Um, be similar in function, but not name uh, for a number of reasons. Um, and, and there's also the element, you know, I think when you were speaking about your experience, you know, you, you interpret these apps as almost like losing something, losing something that you, that you know is available, this sort of wider framework. But for many people um, in the United States, you know, you can't lose something that you never necessarily had. It's it's a it's a new context a more um, a more complete secularization uh, and it's sort of uh, standing in for something that maybe in the past would have existed but doesn't necessarily exist in the person's life so it's it's filling a gap so maybe your your experience it, it appears like it, it appears like a loss but but many people have never had these things to begin with never had these tools or communities. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the mental health crisis because that's you know I've I've mainly spoken in this podcast about the you know the digital technology attention sort of uh, public public conversation, but the mental health crisis I I see as a sort of parallel conversation within which meditation apps and self care practices really uh, should be should be spoken about. you know, there, there's a question of, of, you know, like like you mentioned, self reliance, self help. You know, I think certainly at an individual level, no nobody would say it's it's bad to help yourself. You know, that, that it or it seems kind of illogical to say that. Don't help yourself. But then on a on a social level, you know, I think we have to take a step back and ask, you know, are these apps or these solutions, are they just patches for a very large socio-technical problem that's becoming more and more out of control you know or are we are we kidding ourselves by thinking that these apps will help I mean it just um I think that you know for for every conversation about individuality and self-help we have to also balance it by thinking about the larger social implications about what what are these tools hiding what are what are they not only revealing but what are they concealing about how our society works and are we okay with that
0: well can you talk a little more what, what do you see them concealing these particular meditation apps what are they concealing
1: i think they do run the risk of ignoring social policies for example that might um you know social policies um just general social conditions about how different people experience things like stress health work you know a big component work-related stress Uh, what this means for different people who are treated differently by society I think that's sort of a conversation that you know needs to be a part of it
0: yeah it's a really interesting problem I think a lot about this it's not clear to me how uh, the social awareness and the the urgency of thinking in social terms becomes part of or is folded in or, or is married to this uh, self-practice that all that inevitably has some kind of internal dimension and does even have an element of, you know, you can't change the world, you can change yourself. You can't change your, your immediate stressful working environment, so you can change yourself. And that's true. Like the Stoic aspect of that is true it's just that that's a truth that has certain consequences when it becomes the only truth but how to build a bridge between those two and i know people have been trying for a long time i mean you know buddhists historically have been very good progressive liberals and they've been you know working their hearts out for the environment and for some social conditions and things so it's part of the discourse but on the other in another way it doesn't look very i don't know there's a long way to go uh, and, and so that it seems valuable that you're, you're looking at that stressor in, in your work. And we just have a couple minutes, but I'm curious whether, have you thought about ways that, that these things might come together more or how they can be part of a more engaged uh, social perspective?
1: I, I see my work as, as a, as a way to contribute to this public dialogue. I think that we are, you know, we're, we're too often presented with these, you know, either or uh, frameworks where technology can be either bad or, or either good. And, and, you know, one of the sort of benefits of doing ethnographic research is having these sort of more nuanced details of how these technologies play out in different people's lives. So I've been, you know, very um, cognizant of, of, you know, who I'm recruiting into my research. Am I, I'm, I'm not only talking to, you know, wealthy uh, tech entrepreneurs, but I'm also talking to people in diverse communities in the Bay Area, you know, not only about their health and their stress, but how they uh, experience the technology industry firsthand in in the sort of immediacy of their lives. And I think, you know, having these stories is one step, Um, you know, to the the extent to which I could then translate my academic research to public conversation is another issue. Um, And if you have any advice on that as a podcaster, I'd, I'd be willing to, you know, talk about that. But I think that, yeah, having this sort of more nuanced uh, empirical, you know, I actually spoke to people and observed people, and and they've sort of uh, co-created this with me. Um, you know, I think moving forward is important to sort of analyze the the broader social impacts and and the context of these tools.
0: Yeah, I think you're doing really important work. You know, I, I encourage people who are listening to pay attention to sociology, particularly when people are doing ethnographic research. Because if you, you know, if you ever if you read journalists and you kind of trust them, you know, kind of, then you have even more reason to trust the 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 rigor that goes into ethnographies there can still be problems blah 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 distortions selection bias all those things are still true but it's a very very good way to get a sense of what's going on in the ground on the ground uh in, in these really complicated fields so I, I'm glad you're doing the work you do and I'm sure you'll uh, you'll find a way to be part of that public conversation because we need you <laughs> um anyway uh thanks so much for uh for for joining us on Expanding Mind thank you All right, Uh, it was Rebecca Jablonski, who's uh, at Rensselaer, currently at Berkeley doing research on mindfulness tech. Until next week, keep your minds open.